Yeah, I think the good thing about events is you can upscale, downscale quickly so you can protect yourself, you're ready to come back quickly when it returns. Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. Who's on today, Dodge? I've had the most amazing chat with Brett Gosper. He's the top man of world rugby. World rugby own the World Cups. We delve deep into the finances, the attendances, the broadcasting rights, the sponsorship of the England World Cup in 2015, the Japan World Cup in 2019, which was a huge success. We also delve deep into the mental health of the current players and also the players who retired. This is an absolutely fascinating chat. I think if you love rugby and business, you're going to love this one. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to our channel. Leave us a review on Apple as we read every single one of them. And if you want to send me a private message, you can get me on Instagram at Eventful Entrepreneur. But for now, here's the man himself, Mr. Brett Gosper. Hey, Brett, how you doing? I'm good, thanks, Roger. Good, Very good, 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 good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show, much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Well, uh, let's get cracking. Um, how did you get into sport and business? How I got into it? I was in business and I was working in advertising and, and I ran different agencies in, in, in actually different parts of the world, Paris, New York and London in particular, even actually ran an agency in Germany for a very short period of time. So I was in the ad agency world, but in duplication with that, I was a what you call probably a semi-pro player in France during the 80s at a time when you could you know manage two careers. You could do a rugby career um, and head off from your office to rugby training every night and play on weekends and so on. And um, so you could manage those two lives quite well. Um, came to a point in my, in my advertising career uh, where someone tapped me on the shoulder and said there's this uh, job at, the, at World Rugby or IRB as it was called then, uh, up for grabs. Uh, does it interest you? Um, and it was a bit of a fork in my career at that time and I thought I'll go along and have a listen. I, I think it's going to be bureaucratic, political, and not particularly uh, rich in commercial and business culture, but I'll have a few chats. But as I got into the conversations, realized the multi-dimensional aspect of it, the commerciality around Rugby World Cup, the fan base. Um, and so uh, in their madness, they, they, they selected me for the role I probably bluffed a little bit for my first uh, six months to a year. And um, after seven or eight years, I'm just starting to get the hang of it, really. Wow. Good for you, buddy. Good for you. So it must be a, it must be a, uh, a lot of pressure on your shoulders. How, how, how does it feel? What's the day to day like for you? Well, at the moment, it's very intense because obviously any sport or entertainment business is in a little bit of revenue free fall at the moment. And uh, people are fighting for their lives. The sport's fighting for its life on a, few, on a number of levels, whether it be the, the club or the union level. Um, the revenues aren't there. The games and inventory aren't there. The games aren't there. So we're working very hard to try and optimise the calendar for the good of all, all stakeholders, and at the same time provide some economic relief because World Rugby as an entity, fortunately, was able to get our World Cup away before the pandemic. And we're three years off a blockbuster uh, rugby world cup in France, um, you know, in one of the two key markets, England and France are our big markets. And, and that world cup is 
largely underwritten with some guarantees. So we've got some comfort and security around our own funding, which has enabled us to set up some relief funding for, uh, you know, uh, over 20 unions and, 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 and regions around the world. So we're very busy managing the present while we still plan, obviously, for the future and, and do our usual role, which is to grow, help grow rugby around the world um, in different ways. Yeah. How, how long have you been, how long have you been in the role for now? Yeah, I think it just hit uh, eight years, um, and I must admit, I never thought I'd stay this long. Yeah. Um, it's things happen in four-year cycles, really, in sport. It's because of the World Cup, mm. in particular, in our sport, often the Olympics in other sports. So, actually, it's your second tour of four where you're revisiting substantial stuff for the second time and dealing with things with experience. Mm. I mean. I guess eight years is not that long for a CEO, but it's a reasonable period, um, and and it's and it's been you know an interesting ride over over that period. Yeah, when you came into the post in in 2012, it was called the IRB. What was the change? Was it was it your idea to change it to World Rugby? Yeah, I felt I I felt it was uh, I felt it needed brand attention. I the first thing as an ad guy or a marketing guy that I wanted to understand was, you know, what what was the purpose of the organisation what should it represent to its uh, fan base, its members, you know, what should it stand for, I guess, is what any brand should ask itself. Um, and in going through that exercise as to what the brand should stand for, it was apparent that the IRB was never going to back to the right um, uh, image for, the, for, for what we were trying to achieve. And we wanted to be um, the voice of brand rugby, um, and you're not the voice of brand rugby unless your name is something to do with rugby. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had we had global ambitions, and therefore a name like World Rugby enabled us uh, to 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 fulfil some of those ambitions. It, it better equipped us to uh, attack some of some of the global markets and be reappraised by fans and so on. And I think it was an acknowledgement at the time that we had come quite a long way, uh, even at the period of, of of 2012, where we were about to go to the Olympics into. 216, etc. So World Rugby was also a, a fan-based statement. I mean, we're in the world of, of, of social media platforms mm. um, where fan engagement is critical. And there was no question that being a brand aspiring to be a, a, a community in a way, um, and a collective movement, you're better off being called World Rugby where every stakeholder and every element, every person could be part of that movement. Yeah. Whereas when you call the IRB, mm. a unless you're in the church, no one knows what the hell the IRB yeah. is. <laughs> and if you're in the church, you're probably looking at the IRB as a bunch of administrators managing the game rather than the game itself. And that shift from the focus on the administrators and and towards the opening up of the game for all all participants was was an in, you know it was an intentional one. So yeah, in a, in a yeah. You know, in a long ramble there, that's that was the thinking behind it. And we, we, yeah. we had a positioning for the sport, which is based on the values of the sport. People always talk about the values. Um, and I noticed that in some of the unions, those values were articulated differently. They were all around sort of the same four or five values, but very hard for people to remember what values are and so on. So we positioned the brand. When you've got a kind of prism through which to look at everything you do, mm. if character is your territory, it it certainly does um, not dictate, but it, it manages behavior, decisions, um, respect for referees, uh, whether it be on the field, off the field, 
character is a very good territory and a powerful territory um, for people to align with. Um, new people coming into the sport, those in the sport who understand it and so on. And it sits very well with the sport of rugby. You must be happy the way that you rebranded it because to call it world rugby was, is, is genius just to bring everyone together. And that's number one. I think number two as well is, how's the business model actually work for world rugby? Do you generate money that comes into a pot for you guys to then distribute world? How does it work? That's exactly how it works. It's, um, I mean, just to finish on the brand, the other element of the brand, which was important to us is the visual. You'll see the, the world rugby logo, which is kind of a bit like a half rugby ball um, with a bit of a W shape and so on. That brand is now the family of brands across all of our World Cups as you see them. You saw it really for the first time come out in Japan. The World Cup logo is always has a personality of its own color and content of its own, but it is it is a it is a variation on a theme which is the World Rugby logo. And you'll see that as we go forward to 2023, that logo is out there. Um, as is uh, 21 World Cup in New Zealand for women. Uh, so and our awards and every aspect, whether it be sevens of the HSBC World Seven Series, um, all of these things now have an air of family, and we're reinforcing the brand of World Rugby and 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 our properties at the same time. People know who who the who, who is who is managing those properties and so on. So it's important to us. Um, what was your question? So <laughs> it's talking about the business model, yeah. So so where do you where do you distribute that? That money you get from the World Cup, say England or Japan, yeah. I think it was. I think I read it was two hundred and sixty million pound from the Eng, from the England World Cup, the World Rugby. Yeah, before uh, before distribution, that's that's, yes. that's it. So every four years, we make our money on a World Cup. It's probably about eighty five percent of our revenue now. There's been an uplift in our revenues on sevens, both through the World Series and and the Olympics. Um, but generally speaking. Uh, what happens is about 55% of those revenues are distributed to tier one countries and 45% are distributed to the rest of the world of our 127 members and so on with obviously a, a slight premium on the, uh, the next 10 countries as well. So while that looks like we're privileging 10 uh, of the major countries, they do generate about 85% of the world's oh, revenues wow. in the sport. So. It is a redistribution of wealth model. Um, and we work on different criteria. We, we, we spend that money around the world um, based on performance criteria of unions and their involvement in the game and how they, how many obviously players they have, um, what they're doing around the world of women's rugby, men's rugby, sevens, fifteens, hosting of tournaments. There's all sorts of criteria which gives a staggered uh, amount uh, to, to each union. And we, you know, select some markets where there's a little bit of an uplift where we're expecting return on investment at some point. I'd say countries like America uh, and others would, 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 would qualify in that sense. And also some uplift in some high performance funding in some markets where the competitivity of those markets or, or countries is important for, our, for the, for the uh, staging of our World Cup, the Pacific Islands, etc. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a make money on a World Cup the more we grow the revenues on World Cup, the more we can distribute money and grow the sport throughout the world. You know, either mass participation programs uh, that, we, that we fund ourselves or and through the unions and the regions, 
um, and competitions that are that are that are being managed also by our regions throughout the world. So, so when you come into the post in 2012, you obviously your whole build up was for that 2015 uh, England World Cup. What, what was your day to day role in that? Well, we're we're building two things at the time when I first came in. It was the Olympics in 2016 and our, our re-entry after 92 years, and um, we also had the 2015 World Cup. The day-to-day is we're based in, in, in London, really, most of the time. I was going back and forth from Dublin. to uh, We have a big entity that builds over the time. Um, and uh, Rugby World Cup is brilliantly managed by Alan Gilpin, who's our head of Rugby World Cup. And he's on he's, he's boots on the ground with his team. And it's really day-to-day managing with the organising committee to, sh- to ensure that every aspect of a World Cup uh, is is going to be there on time and be magnificent for the players especially but also the fans and it's all about ensuring that the stadia are there that, that they're well that they are well um that they look the right way that they're available that the transport systems are working that security contingencies are all in place that the players themselves and their travel and the way they're looked after and the accommodation and the training camps um, and the broadcast footprints and the overlays to ensure safety and broadcast and all of those things. A World Cup usually takes, you know, a good six years to prepare. Um, in, in Japan's case, it was nine years and, and, and we needed that time because it was wow. not an established moment. We were dealing with the RFU um, and the organising committee for 2015. You're dealing with a very experienced uh, union. Um, that knows how to manage big events um, and uh, that had its challenges too because they're a strong union and there are all, all sorts of negotiations in that process uh, and then we swung uh, we were at the same time managing the preparation for 2019 because that began when it was awarded in 2009 um, and that was a very different challenge because we we're dealing with a union that wasn't used to dealing with big events and a country that hadn't had a big event since 2002 so 2015, we're coming off the back of an Olympics 2012 in England, in in London. So there was expertise to draw upon. The organising committee hired many people who were part of that Olympic organisation. So they were a very professional, slick outfit. Um, Japan didn't have that advantage and and really, um, you know, to find the talent on the ground in Japan was, was much more difficult. Therefore, it was a more challenging World Cup yeah. to organise on that basis. Yeah. What did you find? That, what were your highs and lows of the Rugby World Cup in England in 2015 and the pressures you felt under? Listen, it was mostly highs. I, I think the uncharted uh, waters for us was when England were eliminated. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know... <laughs> That wasn't in in the plans, although we don't plan the outcomes yeah. <laughs> of the games, obviously. Um, but a at the time, I think it unfortunately because we were working so close with the organising committee, it was a pity to see that their hopes had died at that point in time, and we really felt for them. And obviously, it took a little bit of a wind out of the tournament for a period, and I'd say for about a week. Um, it, it just seemed to, uh, there seemed to be a deflated in, in, uh, environment. I think very quickly, uh, as we headed uh, to those uh, quarterfinals, um, the, the, the tournament bucked up again um, and, you know, semis and finals and the tournament was a huge success on every criteria, it broke all records. Um, but that was probably the stutter. In terms of lows, they're really, you know, that was an extraordinary tournament. We forget, 
you know, because we've had a World Cup since, but it was an extraordinary tournament with you know, 2.47 million tickets sold, record sold at the time, record broadcast audiences um, globally and domestically. We had the Japanese upset of the Springboks, which is a fantastic uh, event. And really, uh, you know, set the excitement off for that World Cup and created the demand and interest for the next World Cup in, in, in Japan. And we were getting 25 million television audience, broadcast audience in Japan, up from about 2.5 million after they beat the Springboks. And so, you know, that, that was one of the great shocks uh, of, of all time. And look, great rugby was played during that tournament. There were great outcomes. And we generated, you know, record uh, surpluses for the game. So it was a it was a brilliant World Cup. And then we moved on, obviously, to to, to Japan. And we positioned Japan as the as the groundbreaking tournament rather than the record break because we didn't really believe it would break many records. We were, you know, we 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 thought it would be a very good World Cup, but it would be very difficult to surpass the Super World Cup that we just had in 2015. Um, as it turned out, the, the Japanese are always nervous about us calling it the groundbreaking uh, World Cup because there are many earthquakes through a year in, in, in Japan. Um, and in the end, we were actually we had a tournament affected by the typhoons and so on. But actually, Japan ended up breaking every every record, um, probably other than surplus. It, it was a higher revenue World Cup, but a, but, a, but a lower surplus because the cost base in Japan to put on a World Cup was actually very high versus England. But we were punching the same level, pretty much the same level on surplus. Broadcast audiences were huge. Video views were at the Olympic level of 2.1 billion video views, which was four times England. And yeah, obviously a lot of that is engagement of new fans yeah. and, 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 and so on over the period of time. But it was, we had domestic audience in Japan of 54.8 million, which is wow. exp you know, wow. absolutely smashed the previous Japanese record by two um, for the Japan-Scotland game, which was the game that was under question. Oh, was that um, that game? Yokohama State. Yeah, you were there. Oh, you? man, what a what an atmosphere. I couldn't and a great game. The Japanese were fantastic. Unbelievable game. And to hear the Japanese singing the national anthem, literally everyone was in tears. Yeah, yeah It no, was, it was unbelievable. It blew me away. So I think that was the high point of that uh, I think that was the high point of the of, of that particular. And considering problem. considering that uh, considering in the morning we didn't know whether the game was on or not. That's right, and we had something like there were, I think there were about forty people from the organising committee slept overnight in the stadium, not really knowing how hard that stadium was going to be hit overnight. Um, so they were really putting their lives in danger, um, and they were there to wake up the next morning to, to get the state, the stadium prepared yeah. and, and, and underway yeah. in, in, in every way. And by about 6am, because they'd been working yeah. already for about two hours, yeah. um, the word came through that, yes, it's going to be okay. The stadium's intact. The field of play is fine. Um, we can, we can go ahead with, that was the best news we had uh, during the tournament. That was the best feeling waking up after the typhoon the night before in the hotel, opening the curtains and seeing exactly. blue skies. It was like, yes, it's on. Exactly. What a feeling, what a buzz that was. It was brilliant. So uh, how long were you out in Japan for? Uh, most of us, well, I was out there for two months. So most of us on, whether it be World Cup board and the organizing group, the organizing group, obviously there a lot longer from our side. Um, so yeah, I was there two months. And it was a it was a brilliant two months. It was fascinating, 
uh, exhilarating, yeah. uh, interesting, and um, yeah, great fun. So you put on some of the biggest events in the world. Tell me regarding Japan, what was the highs, lows, and the pressures you personally felt under? The high was the Scotland game. Uh, and I think the highs were the way the Japanese played throughout the tournament, the way the Japanese public embraced the sport and the tournament. Um, and I think that was beyond expectation. I think we thought the Japanese were going to do well. They played beyond expectation. Their fans um, embraced the tournament beyond expectation. That was the high. Obviously, the low. The lows were um, the, uh, the you know the weather aspects of having to call off some critical games um, was 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 difficult to deal with. And and you know we were. I was at the. At the Fiji Wales game the night we made the call that we had to, to call off and we were trying to shuffle games to different stadiums around the country and then you just realized there were just too many we had contingencies to move one or two games and so on but to move I can't remember the night at the time it, to move timings and dates and places and so on for the large number of games given that the typhoons were still coming through the country and so on uh, we made the call that that was too challenging it was unfair based on the on, on competition rules and so on that we wouldn't be able to maintain parity uh with with, with all of the outcomes in terms of how those the, those those refit the rematches would be made so you know we we we, we opted for the cancel the cancellation um obviously that created um some angst in some some areas um there were you know obviously concerns by scotland that they wouldn't be playing that game uh, with Japan, they they desperately wanted to qualify, as did Japan, as it turns out, and they did. So yeah, that was probably the low point was created by the elements, um, but it led to the high point as well. So uh, you know, but just generally, you know, it was mainly due to the weather. I guess we we had a bit of a white knuckle ride throughout where we were tracking. We had a team tracking. There were two weather forecasters in the unit tracking the entire time typhoons across the country and so on, and we'd have emergency meetings at some points just to really see where that was headed and how we react and what would happen um so yeah th th they were probably the key points yeah. fantastic what sort of revenues uh, did world rugby receive after japan 2019 was it more than they received after 2015 no it was a little bit lower but it was pretty similar it was it was slightly lower um the world cup was a different model in japan in the sense that in in uh, England, uh, what, what usually happens is we look after the broadcast globally, and that's revenues that comes to World Rugby. Uh, we have a tier one part, partners of about six, six major sponsors. We have tier two uh, sponsors and a mixture of suppliers and sponsors at tier three, mainly uh, official suppliers um, in Japan. And, and that all is central. And the local organizing committee makes their money off the ticketing. That's the general. That's the general model that was in England, and and with the ticketing revenues, they pay a uh, a fee for hosting the World Cup to World Rugby on top of the other revenues that we receive. In in, in England's case, I think the from memory now, uh, the fee was about eighty million pounds. So they were able to, out of their ticketing, pay us the eighty million pounds and still themselves make profit uh, from memory 
uh, of probably somewhere in the, in the order of 30 to 40 million pounds at the time. So, so it was, it was lucrative. It was always, you know, again, there's a risk for the local organizer that they don't sell the tickets and they don't sell the tickets at the prices they want to sell the tickets. That market was well conditioned by the Olympic ticketing market prior and they sold more tickets than anyone else. So they, they, they had a, you know, a, a good outcome in Japan. There were always going to be less tickets because the stadia are smaller. And with the, the cancelled games, I think we ended up about 1.8 million tickets and also a market not used to paying higher sporting prices. Um, and so therefore the ticketing revenue was never going to generate, I think what was meant, I think their fee was 92 million pounds. Um, so we ended up, if you like, selling them the second tier and the third tier sponsors, which they organized themselves. They also had help from, from, from local governments revenue for hosting those games. They, they, they uh, you know, paid extra money in that sense. And there was a lot of corporate donations in Japan too. So very unique model. Um, and, you know, World Cup in England cost about 200, sorry, cost about 225 million pounds and it, almost double that in Japan. Wow. And so the, general, the, the extra revenue they generated was very important. Um, to getting us to the surplus that we needed to get to. And they made a surplus locally, um, similar to the, to the, in fact, more than the, the RFU made in 2015. And, and we made pretty close to what we made in 2015, slightly less. Um, but we promoted the game on a new time zone. We generated a new broadcast audience. We're very reliant in broadcast on revenues from England or the United Kingdom and uh, and France, and suddenly Japan is now that third broadcast audience that almost rivals those other two in size. And if we can sustain that into the future, that's been an incredible um, investment for us to have built uh, in, in in those yeah. in, in that World Cup. Must be an amazing feeling, in fact, getting that 2019 under the belt with everything that's going on at the moment. I well, look, we <laughs> we thank our lucky stars every day yeah. that we managed to get that. That, that, that through. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's managed to build, to keep building our reserves and those reserves have become important to, to, to uh, borrow against in order to lend money and help out unions in this time of crisis. Had we not got that away, the sport would be in far more difficulty than, than it currently is. And can you imagine we're, if we were looking at a World Cup this year, we'd oh. be just beside ourselves. Oh. Yeah. We'll look at the Olympics. And, and I, feel, I feel for, you know, the, obviously the Olympic movements yeah. had, had the moving it back moving things back to next year we've obviously got some big tournaments some big household name tournaments uh, around the world whether it be in any you know in any sport um and i, f I feel for them it's just uh, 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 as we do for our own sport where, where things like you know obviously six nations the rugby championship club rugby and so on has all been you know devastated by by the pandemic mm. what are your th what are your thoughts on uh, club rugby in the uk i've just as a businessman looking in, I see that the amount of money being pumped in by the owners and pumping into those clubs, and the business model is just completely broken. Is there a way of is there a way of fixing this? Well, look, there there are, are, are good people that are that have that right. It's not it is not our business to. Uh, we we see the club game is obviously incredibly important bedrock for the sport, um, and it's linked into the communities, a huge part of the sport itself. Um, and there are various leagues around the world uh, that, that, are, that are very important to the profile of the sport and, and the creation of, of, of wealth for players and, and, and owners, hopefully, at, at, some, at some point in time. And as I said, the, the, their, their role in the communities is important. 
Um, there's been some extra investment uh, through CBC into the Premiership in England. Um, uh, and, you know, there's, there's new management there and we'll, and we'll see how that goes. It, it's traditionally, you know, you talk about a business model, I'm sure the owners are seeking return at some point, but, but it, it's a very, you know, sometimes an emotional investment and has been in the past. You'd have to label it as an emotional investment because the collective loss of the premiership has been has been significant and this has been significant money poured in over the time but as the sport grows um not just in this country but in other markets um hopefully um as a going business concern that that can be corrected over time i think uh, me personally i think cbc is a, a a great move um and do you feel do you feel that having more private money being put into the game is the way forward what's um, helpful about the private money is it enables you to accelerate your planning um, uh, where you don't have that injection of cash you're planning uh, in different areas over a longer period of time where you where you have that availability of cash through private equity money you can focus on areas that would otherwise take a lot longer to develop and, and that might in our case in international rugby terms were there to be um, an injection of cash, you'd be looking at, at, at injecting money into new markets, new geographies, and accelerating the growth of the game um, in the women's game, for example, um, or sevens or whatever. So if, you, if you're given that extra money as a, as a business entity, it enables you to look at those areas you are going to invest in and do it more, more significantly and faster. So in that sense, um, for those who, who are receiving that, that, that equity, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a booster. It's a a uh, uh, something which accelerates your 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 outcomes, which is a good thing. And I think, as long as it's managed in the right way, and, and I've seen you know some of the the way that the, 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 the deals that have either been discussed or or uh, or completed, um, CVC are very keen to ensure that their role is around the area of commerciality, business acumen, and not so much in the area of governance redistribution and so on so and that's 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 quite comforting as well so look the point is that there is and it's not just cbc there are queues of private equity firms lining up for this sport because they see great potential and upside in the sport commercially um and uh, and, and and that's good news yeah. how have you said how have you seen like for me i want to supercharge the game i want everything sped up i've seen how it's grown over the last 25 years since it's turn pro but i really believe like the next five years how do you see the next five years going how do we supercharge it yeah nothing moves that quickly in any sport yeah. funny but yeah, as i say these these tend to be on on four-year cycles yeah. um and a particularly a global sport with so many stakeholders and, and input it, you know it, it doesn't often move quite as fast as you'd like to see it move and and at the same time you want to manage the, the sport and ensure that it retains those values and retains those aspects of it that people love while you're gathering in new audiences and new fans and so on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, we're working and peddling as fast as we can to create a future for the sport. And those two main areas are, you know, the, well, three areas, I'd say more meaningful competition at the international level. Um, there are a vast number of games played at the international level that don't count for any particular competition. So we're trying to address that both the, at the, uh, at the tier one and the emerging market level as well, for men and for women. Um, the second area is obviously accelerating the growth of the women's game. There were more 
new registered female players in the world last year than male players. So that there's an incredible growth in that sport. And they're about 25% of our participation now. And new geographies. There are places where if the sport were to grow, particular places where the sport would grow, it would have a return on investment. Um, and, and, and the US is obviously the, the key market there. It's both a difficult market to break into, but a very lucrative market should you succeed in breaking into it the right way. So yeah, we're, we're, we're accelerating as, as best we can in all of those areas. We've ob obviously now been interrupted. Th th this pandemic will set us back and you know, like other businesses and other sectors. So world, so world Rugby, does World Rugby actually own the World Cup and the World Seven Series? That's right. We don't own a lot of entities, but I think, yes, we own the World Cup. Uh, we own the, the Seven Series. We obviously own and organise the relationship with the Olympics. We own all the underage competitions, the Women's World Cup, um, and, and, and certain regional high-performance competitions that we manage with our regions and so on. Um, so they're the properties we own, and our remit is also um, obviously around the laws of the game, uh, the regulations that, that, that govern the sport, uh, the medical aspects uh, of the sport, the player welfare, anti-doping policy and anti-doping management, um, and, and the technical side of the game, size of pitch, surfaces, artificial turf, um, all, all of those things. So, um, And the discipline, uh, the referees, uh, the, the international referees selection uh, and, and, and management and the, the uh, discipline process around, you know, players uh, and judicial and so on. So it's, it is a very broad uh, remit, but from commercial sense, our, our major property is the World Cup and the HSBC Sevens uh, World Series. Can, can you tell us the World Series? Can you tell us what countries are involved in that World Series? Not in terms, actually the host, the actual host countries of that World Series? My memory, there are 10 uh, host cities uh, around the world and they tend to be coupled to enable economic travel. So, you know, whether it be, whether it be um, New Zealand and Australia are coupled together, um, Singapore and Hong Kong, France and England, uh, Vancouver and, and, and the United States, they're all, they're all coupled together. Um, and there are six uh, stops on the on the women's circuit as well, six or eight. I see you, you can check. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have a look. <laughs> We're going through a whole reorganisation on sevens at the moment to try and make sure that our teams are up and running and fit and developed for uh, the Tokyo Olympics next year. And obviously, we've cancelled some of our our tournaments already. Um, so we're, 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 we're reorganizing on that basis, but there's a, a very strong women's world series and a, and a very strong men's world series. Um, and, you know, 16 men's teams, 12 women's teams. And uh, it's, as I say, has a good, great sponsors from HSBC uh, and Capgemini and DHL um, and others. So it's a, it, it, it's a spectacular tournament. It's grown hugely over the, over the years, the Olympic, the Olympic growths help that. I mean, the sport, we measure uh, our sport in terms of a, our fan base and attitudes to the, to the sport and so on. We do research every year through Nielsen. We have around 400 million fans and, and they're people that we, that we call interested or very, very interested and interested in rugby. And that grows by 10% approximately 
at every Olympics and at every World Cup. So six days of the Olympics of sevens grows about 30 million to 40 million audience onto our fan base, as does a six-week Rugby World Cup in Japan uh, or elsewhere. So those two huge events are critical for the, for, the, for the growth of our fan base across the world. And Sevens World Series feeds into that Olympic program very nicely. I see that, I see that Sevens World Series as a golden egg. I really do. I, I see something so exciting there. And for me personally, how do we, how do, again, how do we supercharge it? And how can we make it like Formula One Grand Prix? I think it's got potential, huge potential. Well, it is, it is interesting because it is a model that dissimilar to the, to the, to the Formula One Grand Prix in that it's a, a group that move around the world in the different cities and, and, and so on. And, um, and uh, yeah, we, we've got some, some, some huge plans to, 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 to make that even stronger um, uh, as we go forward. And we take, we've got the time now to plan the next phase to a certain extent because there's a little bit of a hiatus given, given the pandemic that we're in. If there was a if if someone come in a big sugar daddy, and pumped a lot of cash into that World Seven Series, would World Rugby take a look? We we talk to uh, private equity firms often about those possibilities, um, and we have in the past on sevens. It's interesting. We 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 did speak to CBC. Uh, I think we might have been one of the original people speaking about sevens because they approached us to say exactly what you said, which was we do Formula One sevens is just like that. At the time, the board was. Was, was not willing to relinquish the control that would have been required on that at the time. And we felt we could manage the growth at that time through the Olympic uh, inclusion and that we'd see how that would pan out. And, 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 and that's something that could be revisited in the, in, in, in the future. Um, but, but it does generate um, development and growth of the 15s game uh, uh, by the success of sevens itself. Uh, it's a much easier game for fans to get into. Um, and, and once they get into sevens, they are interested also to find out more about 15s. Well, they're more likely to. And that's, that means it's a huge development sampling exercise, sevens. But in itself, it's a spectacular sport. Absolutely. And I think anyone who watches it can pick it up dead quick. And that's why I'm, I look in and I think, wow, this game is waiting, waiting to explode. And I think you've done a great job as far as we are today. But I feel that it's got so much so much growth in it and i'd love to see so a massive injection of cash being thrown at that and just to see what happens well we'll see what happens in the future but we we do invest in it uh hugely i mean to to date a lot of that money's come out of rugby world cup money it's starting to wash its face itself now and generate its own revenues and its own pnl um but you know there, there's some you know magnificent tournaments the, the Cape Town, the Dubai tournament, uh, I did mention as, as the pair as well, a spectacular, you know, Hong Kong, Vancouver, Sydney's been fantastic. We've seen some great tournaments in New Zealand. Um, Singapore is, is new to the table. Um, you is, know, that, is that, is the Singapore new for 2019? No, no, it's been, it's, it's, it's newer than those other. No, okay. The, the, the relatively newer ones are Vancouver and Singapore. Vancouver has been you know, fabulously uh, successful. Yep. Singapore still growing its 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 uh, it, its attendance, um, but you know th th these are magical stops. As, as I say, they are all world class cities um, that, that 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 garner great attention for the sport and 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 you know develop excitement within those cities. Cities are uh, are queuing up again to to, to host these events because yep. they. They create some economies in, in, in the market, which are important. Yeah. How, do, how do the cities have to uh, basically ask to get involved? Into the well, the bid happens 
it's the end of each four-year cycle. Towards the end of it, we reappraise the performance of all of those cities. They're ranked in terms of where the players themselves like to to to, to perform their favourite uh, cities or their favourite tournaments. They look at it in tournament terms, but obviously the city's part of that. Um, our, our sponsors and broadcasters, the fan base, the generation of revenue. So there's a lot of criteria. That, and then we decide whether we're going to move, change, uh, stay where we are, et cetera. So that's done every four years. Um, but, you know, cities and unions, because it does create revenues for them and for cities and local tourist boards, it creates uh, visits and arrivals, you know, particularly places like, you know, Dubai, obviously Emirates is a big sponsor of ours for that tournament. It's a magnificent tournament. The inbound that generates for for, for 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 Dubai, Emirates, and so on is 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 important, and um, and that's the same across the board. I mean, the, so these big events. I mean, we talk about the economics of the, of the events that I didn't mention on 2019. 2019 generated 4.2 billion pounds uh, of of in, in extra GDP for uh, the Japanese market. Um, that was twice the level of of 2015. Economic generation because people stayed longer, spent more um, uh, in in Japan, and, and things probably a bit more expensive there too. Uh, so uh, the the economics of hosting some of these events is is huge, which is why there are many countries interested in hosting our next uh, group of rugby world cups, which are twenty seven and thirty one on the men's, and for the women as well. We're going to bundle all of those world cups together in a in a in a bidding process. Yeah. Amazing. How did you feel at the 2016 Olympics to see sevens being played? Yeah, it was very moving. It was it was a very challenging in, in environment leading up to it, the organisation and so on. It was a bit of a nail biter because obviously the economics became incredibly challenging for Brazil. There were there were there were cuts in every area. We were we were really not sure we were going to put on the event we wanted to put on. We knew once we got the players onto the field. If that field was in good shape, we were confident the product was going to be great, but we just didn't know how many people were going to turn up, yeah. whether the state was going to be ready, whether the park was going to be as it was, whether you know the whole infrastructure was challenging. It, it, it worked well in the end. There were you know some minor challenges on, uh, at, at the uh, at the location as it turned out, but generally speaking, it went very well. And it was very moving to see rugby back yeah. into uh, into the Olympics and. You know, after 92 years or so, and and we, we know that rugby seven is a great format for multi-sport events like the Commonwealth Games. We've seen it, and 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 Pan American Games, and and so on. We've seen how how rugby is is usually the highest demand ticket, or one of the high demand tickets at, at the Commonwealth Games. We believe in Japan, it really is one of the high demand tickets as well. Following the the World Cup, I guess has it's had that effect, but. It, it's captured uh, the imagination of the Olympic audience. It's mm. slotted back in like it was always there in a way, uh, is what some of the IOC members tell us. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, fantastic for the sport. Awesome. I've got um, uh, quite a few of my friends who are, uh, played England rugby up to the age of 30, 35, now retired, but they absolutely battered their bodies. Um, and they're walking around like complete messes, some of them, putting their bodies on the line. What are your thoughts about playing too much rugby currently as we are because everyone's bigger, stronger, faster, bigger tackles, more games week, weekly, more international games. Then there's a tour. Is it too much? 
look, it's hard to generalise. I guess if you did generalise, you'd probably say, yes, there's probably too much rugby for each individual being played at the moment. In the elite area, probably that would be right in some areas. There's an overlap of a number of players from club to country who are called upon to star each weekend for, for their different uh, teams. And that's, that, that puts high pressure on them. And, mm. and in a way, the system's got to take that decision away from the players and in some cases the coaches and lay down some protocols to ensure that those players are well managed. And you know, the advances in technology and an and understanding of player load and the management of injuries and prevention of injuries in law that we you know, have an evidence, evidence-based approach in is making great strides in this area. So I think the direction of travel will be good as, as we go forward. But yeah, the, the, these things definitely need to be because it's a part of, we're trying to address a better calendar that allows for less overlap, but you're always, and we have a, a work group led by the players themselves on how to manage over a season that movement from club to country and, and what's what's best for players, how many minutes should they be playing? And look, some players some players thrive on on, on a high volume of, of, of games and others don't. There are you know, different bodies, different positions on the field. And all of that has to be taken into consideration in, in, in any approach. But we put the players at the centre of, with obviously our medical teams and researchers and statisticians to, 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 to find out to find the right balance uh, as we go through. But yeah, the players are bigger, faster, stronger, but they're also bigger, faster, stronger, and therefore they take those knocks better. You know, we've seen over about the last 20 years, while there's been a rise in, a slight rise in injury rates, there's been dramatic rise in the number of collisions, ball in play since, uh, you know, 20, since the game turned professional has gone from 27 minutes to 39 minutes. Um, you know, many, many more collisions, the breakdown, Pure scrums um, because the ball's in play more often, and so on. Um, I saw some stats then about the uh, how the rucks have tripled. Yeah, they're the different rucks though. <laughs> so, you know, so it's, it's a different shaped game. It's very hard on some of these criteria um, to, to 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 work it out. I think in the '87 World Cup final, I think I heard some of there were 42 scrums. Whereas well, in a World Cup final now, there's probably 10 or 12. <laughs> um, so look, the, the game has changed, but the players are. Uh, are better prepared, they're better shaped, they're, 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 they're more physical, they're, they're, they can handle the knocks obviously better or, or in, 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 the, in the days that, uh, you know, whether it be the 80s, 90s, even the early 2000s, if they're taking as many knocks in the condition they're in, yes, it would have been a, a, a bit difficult. The players' sizes, I think in, I was looking at some stats, in 95, the average player was 100 kilos and now they're 104. So there's been a four kilo, that's, and I think most of that happened from the amateur, so from 95 to about probably 2003. Since 2003, 2007, World Cup sizes, actually they went down in England. I haven't, I, I, I can't recall. I know they, for the first time, the weights of the players went down in England. And I would guess, we've got the stats, so I just can't, can't recall them at the moment. They might've gone down again in, in Japan as well as mobility and speed of execution is coming back onto the, the coach's table a little more. So the players aren't getting bigger anymore. They got, they got bigger, uh, but they're not getting bigger anymore. They got bigger, yeah, yeah. They live in a bubble, as we all know. They live in a bubble of that professional area. It's about rugby, 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 trying to hit the, the busy heights. Is there enough support when they actually retire for their mental health? No, I'd say probably not. Again, we're... we're, we're at World Rugby, our 
we, we work with the international rugby players and, you know, this is an area of great uh, concern for them um, and, the, and the local player uh, associations as well in, in, in managing those players, both through their careers, uh, physically and mentally, um, but also post-career, you know, how, how do these players uh, get managed once they've, they, they don't have perhaps the income they had, they don't have the highs they had, um, and, and they talk to us about this all of the time. And there is funding that, that, that we make available through those player associations to help out. But they would say, and therefore we concur, that more could be done in this area. Um, but it requires people, economics, funding, and so on. But the first step is the realisation that it's needed. And, and, and so we'll continue to work with the players association to, to, to explore how we can help better and, and how the local associations can help better. In those and it's you know it's also you know Pacific Island players and players coming from other 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 countries also where they may have either got injured or they've not they've not succeeded as they will have and it's important that these players are well surrounded and advised so that they don't you know go into a downer that's that's difficult to retrieve. Mm. If you could wave a magic wand and money wasn't an issue, what would you do to help the mental health of these players that have retired? It's it's it's, it's counselling. It, it, it's about providing people who can counsel, training programs for transitions into other sectors, to detecting earlier in their rugby careers what the likelihood of the sectors and possibilities, of, and and finding interests for them. So it really is about career management beyond uh, rugby. You know, it's not just you know I've stopped playing now. I'm going to look around for a job. Through their rugby careers, they should be doing you know the odd week here and there as much as difficult for a player understanding, learning, maybe some online learning in careers that might, they should be being exposed to possibilities throughout their rugby career to, A, it gets them thinking beyond it, um, and, and B, it, it might ignite some interest that, 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 that creates the possibility to be trained and formed later on. And you have to start, you have to start playing that quite early um, in a game uh, as injurious as rugby where, you, you know, whether it be football or rugby, you know, you might be terminated by an injury or something like that. You have to have a backup. You can't put all your eggs in one basket. In, in, the, in football, the players, certainly the very, very elite level, are earning so much money that they'll have other issues and they, they, they obviously have to deal with uh, mental issues of, 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 of retiring and so on. But one of their worries is probably not financial. Whereas a rugby player, as much as the, the elite players earn very well, um, they get into used to a certain lifestyle. And when that money stops they may not have earned a lot of them enough to see them through to the end of let's say normal retirement so they, they really do need to think about what they're going to do post post game yeah Brett, you've put on some of the biggest events in the world and been involved in some of the biggest events in the world and you've probably got the dream job for someone in uh, who loves rugby what, what are you excited about the world cup 2023 in france look i, I love france i lived there for, for 12 14 years actually um, so I love the country and I love the way the French play rugby and I love the culture that's involved in rugby in France that's, you know, from, from the provincial, the towns, the villages. Um, so I, I, I just don't think there's a better backdrop for the sport um, than, than a place like France where the weather's great, the vistas are great and, and they're very innovative. They will be, you know, they saw that the Rugby World Cup in 2019 uh, was brilliantly organised and a huge success. 
And that doesn't daunt them, that actually excites them that they want to go further and they want to do some innovative things. And, you know, we had a World Cup in 2007, which was amazing, uh, but they want to go further, and, you know, break records and, and do new things and they'll stage a fantastic World Cup. Um, uh, so, yeah, it, it, what mostly excites me about it is also there's a, a comfort of knowing. I mean, this is a country also that's, uh, that that's, has an Olympics, that had Olympics back in the day, but they, they've got obviously an Olympics in the pipeline. They've hosted uh, football World Cups. You know, they are masters of the universe in terms of hosting massive events. So there's a comfort for that in world rugby that this is going to display our sport in the best possible way. And the World Cup's the shop window for the sport on a global basis so uh it's it, it'll be fantastic are there any questions that you've got for uh, that you'd like to ask me well how did you get into this what are your what are your ambitions for give me a bit of background on on, on what you're hoping to achieve yeah the uh well we set up the podcast purely because we want to promote the events industry i've been putting on events now for 20 plus years thousands of events and 12 festivals at bournemouth sevens and events is my life and essentially i thought well there's a there's a nice gap in the market here to really bring events to people who don't really know about events or people who want to change career and get into events or someone who's already in events wants to open up some doors or some contacts and it's really just to get behind the, the whole events industry um and i think this channel this podcast with with yourselves and everyone else who we've got coming on the show i think can really promote that um so we're really in an exciting exciting space and we've also in the middle of creating an events course, an online dynamic events course, which hasn't been done before. So we're building that. Well, there's one for players. That's, I mean, players naturally fit into an event uh, space because they're, they're, they're participating, they're involved. Um, they're usually uh, trained in, in, in media. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, I'm sure some players, that could be their destiny as well. So yeah. um, that, that's a good thing. Are you suffering hugely by the pandemic as well. Obviously events are uh, very challenging uh, at the moment. Just gathering people in any way is very challenging. Absolutely. I think events, uh, to put it bluntly, have been kicked in the plums um, this summer um, and it's been an absolute knock for everyone. But, you know, we're a tough bunch um, and everyone's going to brush themselves down. Everyone's planning for next year now. 2020 is over. Yeah, I think the good thing about events is you can upscale, downscale quickly, so you can protect yourself yeah. very quickly if, if if the market yeah. goes for whatever reason, but be ready to come back quickly when it when it Absolutely. returns. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's why we created the course for people. They can come and do our online events course and do a three month course. They learn more in three months than they would do doing a degree for three years. You know, we're bringing our experience and experience from everyone we know in the events industry into the course. You'll have them. That's fantastic. You know, that might be something you should be talking to. Uh, Damien Hopley at the Rugby Players yeah. Association in, in England about because I'm sure um, you, you'll get some takers in the in the yeah, world of rugby. I, I think so, and it's very exciting space right now. And and even though I'm not going to mention the C word, but it has created wonderful opportunities that we're good. going to bring to the table. Well, I wish yeah. you well. I wish you well for that. Oh, good man. I really do appreciate that, Brett. You've been an absolute star. Love your honesty. Uh, what what a what an exciting journey you've been on, and the next four years for you, I think, is going to be even more exciting. Could could be could be fun. But thank you very much for having me on. It's been a, a delight to talk with you. I wish you well in your in your business, and I'm sure we'll stay in touch. Good man, you're a gentleman. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Cheers. Take care.